I want us to pray together and then we are just going to get into our study this morning. Father in heaven, what we are looking at is, well, it's very personal. It's very practical, but it's very personal. So I'm asking you to give us individual insight. I'm asking you, Lord, then to give us the conviction to apply what we learn. Now, Lord, we know that you promise us that when we open the Bible and we read it, it will not return void. So I pray, Lord, that we hold on to that promise. You also promise us that when we gather together as a church that there will be great encouragement. And there is. It's part of why I love Sundays the way I do. It's the encouragement of the church. So thank you for this body and the blessings that they bring to one another and into my life. And I pray, Lord, that we will be faithful with what you teach us in the book of Hebrews to keep encouraging one another, building one another up until you return. I pray that will be our mission. I pray that we will take it seriously. And I pray that we will find that encouragement not only in fellowship, but in your word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. For the past several weeks, we have been in Genesis chapter 32. If you want to open your Bibles there, we're going to go once again this morning. Now, I've been spending a lot of time not only on Sunday mornings, but also throughout the course of the week as I've been preparing for these messages. There's a specific set of verses out of Genesis 32 that we've been looking at. Let's do it one more time today, starting in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now that's where we've been spending a lot of our time, this idea of coming into God's camp and looking at what happens when we do. Now from Jacob's story, we have learned a lot about God's camp and what happens there. In particular, this one part of his story in God's camp. Pick up with me in verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now we have read that repeatedly over the course of the past few weeks. And like I said, I've spent a lot of time in that passage in preparation as well. But this past week, it struck me that this passage from the book of Genesis was written by Moses. Scholars have long said that Moses is the author of the first five books 
of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We also refer to those as the Pentateuch. Nobody disagrees, or at least no one credible, disagrees with the authorship of Moses. Moses is the one who wrote them. Now, four of those five books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, make perfect sense when you look at it from the standpoint of Moses' authorship. Those books tell the story of his life. They tell the story of the Exodus. They tell the story of Moses leading the children of Israel into the Promised Land. All of that makes perfect sense. But Genesis, Genesis predates Moses. So all of the writing that Moses did about the things recorded in the book of Genesis came certainly through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he did not witness them himself. He was telling it from a third party. The Lord told him what to write, and he did. And like I said, all of that is inspired, and it is very, very useful for us. And as we read those inspired words, we know that we're going to have certain things revealed to us because God is ultimately the author of what is there. There's no question. But I found myself wondering just this past week what it would be like to read Genesis chapter 32 from a first-person account, to hear Jacob tell the story. Not just Moses sharing what he had heard or what the Lord had told him, but to hear Jacob tell it. Then I sat down at my computer and started writing. And I want to share with you my own idea of what it would sound like if Jacob told the story of what we just read. This is nothing more than Phil's unbridled imagination. That's all this is. It isn't inspired. It is just my imagination. But as I was thinking about it, I had to try to set the tone for what I was looking for. And these are the series of questions that I went through in order to get there. How would I want to talk to Jacob? Well, that would be face to face. I'd like to have Jacob sitting with me. Well, then my next question was, where would I like to see that happen? Where would it be most comfortable and most fruitful? And I quickly thought to myself, in my backyard, sitting around our fire pit. It's one of my favorite places to sit and visit with people and just tell stories. So I brought a couple of chairs from our backyard. These are the ones that would sit around our fire pit. But then it struck me that if I were to sit down in one of these and have an empty chair sitting across from me, it might look a little weird. So I needed to bring somebody out that could represent the relationship that I would like to have with Jacob in this discussion. So I've asked my friend Ray Brossman to come and fill the other chair. Now let me set the stage for you so that this makes sense. Ray and I have known each other for 16 years. We have traveled across the state of Montana together hunting. We have traveled across to the United States together looking at ministry opportunities. We have fished with one another off the coast of Washington. And most recently, we have traveled out of the country. In the 16 years that Ray and I have known each other, we have been tied together, bound together in a common love for the kingdom of God and his church. Ray is now, if my math is right, Ray, Ray is the longest sitting elder that we have. And he became an elder just before Tina and I came to Libby and started serving here at the church. So what that means is we've covered a lot of ground together. Ray and I are friends. We have shared many meals together and many experiences together. So I can imagine that this would be like sitting down with somebody like Ray. When Jacob starts talking, it would be that type of a relationship. And Ray willingly agreed to come out here and, and just sit in a chair with me. That's, that's all he's going to do is just sit in a chair. And we'll see where the Lord takes this. this is the 
Oh, yes. <laughs> Way too many from me. So let's take a seat, Ray, and, and I'll just share with you my ideas of what this would be like if Jacob and I were in my backyard sharing hunting stories with one another. Here's the way it would sound. I was 12 years old when my grandfather took me hunting, just the two of us. Dad stayed home. Mom told me grandfather had something he wanted to share with me, not just a hunt, but something much deeper. Esau had been with him many times. They both loved the hills and the woods. I tended more towards home back then. But any time I could have my grandfather was cherished. I was excited when he asked, and I had made plans for days leading up to our time together. We went after rams. Grandfather loved to hunt sheep. So does father. Usually they go on that hunt, just the two of them. But this time I was invited. Esau never hunted rams with grandfather. I'll never forget that night. We laid under the stars. No tent, no servants, not even a fire. Grandfather wanted me to see the sky clearly. He asked me to count the stars, and he would do the same. One, two, three, one hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred. I lost count. When I did, I looked at grandfather. He wasn't counting, only smiling. He told me that Yahweh had first done this with him and offered him a promise. Number the stars, if you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. I was confused. Grandfather told me that was a promise Yahweh had made him, but I would be the one to bring it about. I've often thought of that night. In fact, I've never been able to get it out of my mind. But that night beside the Jabbok, a different promise was ringing in my ears. One Yahweh made me personally. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. He said they will spread out to the east and to the west, the north and the south. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through me and my offspring. As the fire was dying down, I couldn't imagine how that promise could ever be. Esau was coming. I knew he was bringing with him the end of me and more than likely my entire family. Eleven sons, my sons, my daughter, precious Dinah. This would be their last day as it would be mine. Four hundred men were coming with my brother. It had been twenty years. He had prospered. Surely the fire of revenge would have died down in any other man. But I knew my brother. So I was praying. Those words are also forever etched on my heart. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, deliver me from Esau. I am following your command to return to their land. I am trusting your promise to be with me. Yahweh, 400 men will wipe us out. Please, I need you. It was then that I heard the splashing. A man was crossing the Jabbok, coming right for me. It wasn't my brother, but he seemed determined. Fear was right beside me. This man was coming for me. Maybe he saw it send an advanced scout or another man to do his bidding. This man stopped three feet from me, silent as the night. I knew him but I couldn't place him. I raised my staff. Faster than I have ever witnessed, the man took it from me and threw it across the ford. He took a stance I'd not seen in years. It was one from the land of my father. He wanted a contest, a wrestling match, a struggle, a fight, one I believed unto death. We circled each other twice and locked arms in combat. This nameless one was powerful. Yet I was surprised at my own abilities, as I'd not locked arms like this in years. The longer we fought, the more convinced I was this was not a mere man, and he certainly was not sent by Esau. 
We struggled with all we had. As we did, the fear inside me changed. It changed to one of knowing. It was familiar, a fear that had followed me all my life, one I had every time I met with Yahweh. The night seemed to last forever, but so did my strength. As day was breaking, the man looked to the horizon and turned his back as to leave. I seized that moment and grabbed him, my strength unlike any I had ever had before. The challenger tried to get free, but I held fast. Suddenly, he lowered his hand hard on my hip. My scream was louder than the approaching dawn. My leg gave way, but I held on as if to let go of this man would mean letting go of my life. I could endure pain. What I could not do was let go. For the first time as the sun was climbing, the man spoke. Let me go for the day has broken. I whispered back, I will not unless you bless me. It was that moment that brought relief in our struggle. The man yielded the battle. The contest was over. He asked, what is your name? Jacob, I responded. And then he did something I'd only heard grandfather speak of. He changed my name. He changed it to Israel because I had striven with God and with men and had prevailed. The fear was right. I was wrestling with God that night. He stripped so much from me in those hours and in the years since. I am by no means perfect, but I am working to be better with God and with man. That night changed my life. It was then that I decided to quit trying to control everything and simply let God take the lead. It's been hard, trust me, but it's been so much easier since I let go. Phil's thoughts, that's all those are. But you can imagine what it must have been like for Jacob in those moments, wrestling with God, recognizing that his entire life up to that point had been determined by control. His ability to move the pieces on the chessboard ahead of everyone, even in his own belief, ahead of God. He was the one calling the shots. He was the one making the decisions. It had been a struggle. All these years, it had been a struggle. At this point, scholars would say that Jacob was around 40 years old. He'd been isolated, left alone, battled through all kinds of different things. And now this struggle, this wrestling match, this one was with God himself. This one was with the Lord. And it was a game changer. And the same thing can happen for every one of us. When we come into God's camp and wrestle through the deepest issues of life with God, we will find ourselves at this same place where we can surrender control and let God take the lead. And from that point forward, everything is different. Our past is simply that. It is our past. Our present is now determined by the relationship that we have with the Lord and our future is determined by what He wants for us and our willingness to follow that. That's what happens when we wrestle with God. That's what happens in God's camp. And I want us to spend some time this morning looking at that wrestling match, the surrender of control, and then take a look at what happens afterwards. One of the things we know from this story is that when we wrestle in God's camp, we must surrender control. We have to lay down the things that matter most to us and let God take care of them. He may very well change our priorities in the process. He may show us that the things that, we matter, that matter to us the most really don't matter at all. God has the ability to change our perspective 
just like that. My good friend Kevin Ingram is the president of Manhattan Christian College. He's been here a number of times. He's preached and shared with our church. He's led marriage retreats along with his wife, Lisa. He's done some leadership training for our elders throughout the years. Kevin loves this church. Tina and I love the time that we get to spend with Kevin and Lisa. Whenever that opportunity comes up, we take advantage of it. We will work hard, as will they, to try to make that happen as regularly as possible. It's like a fresh wind blowing in our lives when we get to be with them. It fills our sails and hopefully does theirs as well. Love being with Kevin and Lisa. In their role leading the Bible college, they have students over on a regular basis for dinner. A lot of times they'll invite large groups of freshmen and sophomores to come over and then smaller numbers of juniors and seniors will be invited. When he invites the freshmen and sophomores to come over, maybe they've never been there, they get to learn his rules. As soon as they walk into the house, Kevin's there at the front door and he tells us that he looks right at them and says, take your phones out, put them on the table by the door. Every one of you. As soon as they walk in, pull your phone out, put it on the table. Now, Kevin would tell you that there is always an argument that ensues, especially that first time. These young men and women will pull their phones out and they'll look at their phone and they'll look at the table and they'll look at Kevin and they'll say, I can't leave my phone here. I'm waiting on a message from whoever it might be. Or I'm trying to talk with people on Instagram or I've got this message thread going on Snapchat. I, I have to stay on this. I have to keep talking. What if my parents try to get a hold of me? Ah, that's a good ploy. What if... What if, what if, what if, what if? I can't leave my phone here. And Kevin says, you have a choice. You can leave your phone on this table and be with who you're with, or you can keep your phone with you and leave. That's your choice. But if you're coming in here, you will leave your phone on this table. Now for millennials, particularly those at this stage of life, man, that is a hard challenge. That is a hard challenge. Kevin would tell you that some of those young men and women would rather cut their own arms off and leave those on the table than lay down their cell phones. And that's not hard to imagine because study after study after study of the millennial generation has found that 90% of people that fit in that generation would rather have their pinky finger removed than lose their cell phones. They would rather cut off a finger than lose their cell phone. Can you imagine well, I just read a new statistic this past week. The Pew Research Center came out with this one, and they have just done an extensive survey of the millennial generation. Forty percent, 40 percent of millennials would rather lose their car than their phone. What? Their whole belief is as long as they have their phone, they can still call for an Uber or a Lyft. So it's really no big deal. They'd rather have their phone. Now, if you told people of my generation that you had a choice when we were 18, 19 years old, you could lose your car or you could lose your cell phone, take the phone. You can't take the car. The car was the greatest sign of independence we had at 18, 19, 20 years old. Who knows what I'm talking about? 40% of the millennials would say, yeah, take my car. It's all good. I can still get on Lyft or Uber and it's all good. Take my car, but don't take my phone because the phone matters so much to them. So Kevin has learned in a very practical way of labbing this thing that if they were in a wrestling match with God and God said you have to give up your cell phone, many of them wouldn't. 
That's just a matter of prioritizing things, figuring out what matters the most. Well, for Jacob, when he went into God's camp and they began this wrestling match, Jacob's priorities were all firmly established in his mind. And over the course of the time that they had together this wrestling match, God realigned those priorities. God changed things up in his life and he showed him something new. He showed him a future. He showed him a present and a future that would change everything for him. It's pretty cool when God does that for us. And I want you to know that the Lord still does that very thing. When we wrestle with Him, when we struggle with Him, when we enter God's camp and we go into that type of a relationship with Him, the Lord realigns our priorities as well. But here's how He does it in Christianity. He does it through grace. He does it through His Son, Jesus The relationship is formed through Jesus, but grace is poured out in our life to deal with our past, give us a new present, and show us a new future. And because of Jesus Christ, we have the ability to experience the same things that Jacob did, a wrestling match with God that redefines everything. It redefines everything. We are offered a new life, a new present, and a new future in Jesus Christ. But we still have to go through the same things where we choose to let go of control. We choose to surrender. We choose God's path. I want to show you what that looks like. In order to do that, we're going to leave the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, and we're going to go to the new, to the book of Ephesians. If you want to head that direction, I'll join you in just a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Oftentimes, that happens through this wrestling match. And the new that comes, the new life, is detailed for us in Ephesians chapter 4. Hopefully, you're turned there. We're going to pick up in verse 17. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now let's stop there for just a second. That's kind of the bad news in this whole story. Paul uses the word Gentile to describe those that are outside of Christ, that are distant from God. He could have easily talked about Jews that were distant from God as well. But he chose the term Gentile, the relationship of the Gentiles with God, in order to illustrate this whole thing. These are people that are distant from the Lord. Hopefully you understand that. He's not just picking on Gentiles. He's using it as a broad illustration of people in a certain condition with God that are distant from him. Now, if we were to take these verses, 17 through 19, and give you enough time to go through and circle or underline words that are descriptive in nature of what Paul was trying to get across, you would more than likely, just like I did, come up with nine words. Here they are. Futility darkened, alienated, ignorance, hardness, callous, sensuality, greedy, 
impurity. Now that's exactly what Paul is teaching, that people that are distant from God are defined by these types of words. More than likely, they are defined by these words because of the choices that they have made. And you can look and see how choice leads to each one of these, or each one of these leads to certain choices. Nine descriptive words in three verses to help us see exactly what Paul is trying to get across. People that are distant from God wrestle with these types of things. Now, it might be easy for you to say, okay, but I've met people in the church that wrestle with things just like this. And you would be right. There are people that would say, believing with all of their heart, that they are in relationship with God, yet all of these things still govern their life. There is a point in Christianity where every one of us has to take a look and ask ourselves if we are in the faith. The Bible says, test yourself, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. So I want you to hear me on this. I want you to hear me so desperately that I'm actually going to project this sentence for you. Here it is. Listen to this. The Christian life is fundamentally a changed life. If you claim to believe in Christ but are living just as you did before you believed in Him, you need to examine whether you truly believe in Him. We all have to. Even within the church, we have to take a close look at ourselves and say, am I living a new life or am I still the same way I was when I came into God's camp? Has anything changed? Am I a different person in any capacity or am I still the same? This is one of the keys to discipleship. Figuring out if we have changed, if we have become a new person. We have to determine that. Now, if you'll pick up with me in verse 20, I'll show you what happens when we do. Paul says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now that's how we do this. That's how we get to this point. There are at least four things that the Apostle Paul calls out in just those few verses that we just read that show us what a new life in Christ looks like. Here they are. Number one, we must get to a place where we believe in Jesus. We have to get to a place where we believe in Jesus. Now you might say, okay, I've been trying for a long, long time, preacher, and that sounds great. How do I do that? You have no idea how happy I am that you ask. I am just thrilled that you ask. Here's four steps to that. Number one, and this is almost universal. Number one, you hear about Jesus. That's how most people find their way into a relationship with him. You hear about Jesus. And then step number two, you choose to learn more about Jesus. You invest yourself in Bible study. You invest yourself in growing in relationship with him. You invest yourself in every learning opportunity that you have. Every opportunity that is put in front of you. You grab hold of it for all your worth. And then number three, you begin trusting in Jesus. So once you've heard about him and then you've learned more about him, then you make a choice. And it is exactly that, a conscious choice 
to trust in Him. I'm going to do what He says. I'm going to trust that He is who He says He is. And therefore, I can do what He says. So you choose to begin that process. And then that leads to number four. And this is almost the entirety of the discipleship process. You believe in the truth about Jesus. You believe in the truth about Jesus. So you hear about him. You learn more about him. You choose to trust him. And then you believe the truth about him. And that is unbelievably important. I like the way... This quote sums that up. This comes from Martin Lloyd-Jones. The Christian is not saved by a philosophy of redemption. He is saved by that historic person, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God. Some of the false cults talk about the cosmic Christ or the Christ principle within us all. But that is just metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. That's pretty good. We have to believe the truth about Jesus. He is who He says He is. I believe it. I trust it. It is settled. It is a done deal. And when we do that, we have found ourselves in a place where we have really got a rope around step number one. We truly believe in who Jesus is. And then step number two comes along very quickly. That's where we, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, put off the old self. We put off the old man, the old self. For Jacob, that happened when God gave him a new name. When he said, you won't be called Jacob any longer. From this point forward, you will be Israel. Now, he made him face his past, and we've talked about that over the last couple of weeks, so I don't want to go back over that. But in the process of that, we also talked about identity, how we identify ourselves, who we are. Well, my friends, there is a good point for us in our walk with Christ to get to a place where identity also involves who we are no longer. That's who I used to be, but I'm not that person now because of Jesus, because of the transformation that has happened. The old is gone. The new has come. I have put off the old self. The old self is is dead. The old self is history. But we all know this as we have journeyed with the Lord. That old self is always knocking at the door, wanting to come back. So there's this ongoing choice process of keeping the old self at bay, keeping the old self away from us. And we have to do that. We can never give up on it. But there is a process that helps with that. And this is step number three that the apostle would lay out in Ephesians chapter four. It happens through the renewing of our minds. Now let me show you what Paul says about that in other places in scripture. This is found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now listen, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The transformation begins in our heart where we make the choice to love the Lord our God. But then that transformation, that renewal that took place in our heart makes its way to our mind and then eventually out of our mouth and out of our hands and out of our actions. That is all part of the renewing of the mind, the way we see things, the way we handle things, the way we approach things, the way we do life. If we have been renewed by the Spirit, 
then there is a new evidence of that within us. That's part of discipleship. That's the measuring stick of discipleship. And when that renewal has happened, then step number four takes place. We put on the new self. We become a new person. And you know what that new person looks like? Well, Paul gives us pretty good insight. This is Ephesians 4 again, starting in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's the new life. Now when we lay down all that other control, when we surrender all of that, and we take off the old self and put on the new self that's been renewed not only in heart but in mind, then that's what happens. That's what it looks like. That's what it means to stand in the present and move into the future as this person that God has in mind for us. Pretty cool. It's very cool. And that's the only way that it's possible. It is through the grace of God poured out on us through His Son, Jesus Christ, that we can do that very thing. Now here's the kicker. Back in Genesis chapter 32, we learned that after all of that has happened, we may very well walk with a limp for the rest of our lives we may walk with a limp a reminder of our time with God we may have that for the rest of our days on this earth but when we get to heaven that limp disappears but until that time God gives it to us as a reminder for Jacob and for all of the Jewish people that hip became a reminder they don't even eat the sinew out of the hip They don't touch the hip meat because of what happened with Jacob. Jacob walked with that limp the rest of his life. I have believed for the longest time because of Western Christianity and our Western way of seeing things, I have believed that this wrestling match between Jacob and God was somewhat violent. It was not until I started studying the teaching of the rabbis about this that I found a different way of looking at it. And I am convinced today that the way that I have seen this for the better part of 40 years of hearing this story and studying it, 50 years if I heard it before I was able to really comprehend, but 40 years of hearing this story and studying it, I I think I've been looking at it wrong. The rabbis have shown me something different and I really appreciate that. I want to share with you some of what I have learned over the course of the last few weeks on this. This comes from a, a group called Sar Shalom, which are the Messianic Jewish community that exists all around the world. Sar Shalom has some extensive stuff that they have written, some extensive teachings that they have put out, and I really appreciate what they have to say. Let me show you what they say about this account with Jacob. And it should not surprise us that the Jewish communities would have greater insight than we do. They've been studying this 
forever. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham for mercy's sakes. Jacob was the son of Isaac, the original two patriarchs. The Jewish faith hangs their hat on the patriarchs. So they have studied this inside out, upside down, right side out, every different way that you could possibly imagine. And that's how they've come to some of the conclusions that they have. Take a look at this from Sar Shalom. You see, we assume that since they are wrestling, and because his hip is wrenched, that it is a violent ordeal. But that is not so. The man is actually helping Jacob in this wrestling match. We know this man is Messiah. Now that comes from Jewish rabbis. That is so cool. Therefore, there will be no violence in this match. He is actually being changed by the embrace of Messiah, just as we are all to be changed by the love and the embrace of Messiah. If Jacob's flesh wins this match, and if after the match Jacob is unchanged, then Jacob will lose. But that is not the case. Jacob is embraced by the Messiah and he is changed. He limps away. We all have to limp away from our encounter with Messiah. We all have to be changed. Our walk must be changed. We can no longer struggle for the things of this life as Jacob struggled. We need to fall into the trusting embrace of Yeshua. This wrestling match with Yeshua must be lost if we are to overcome. We have to be changed into the likeness of Yeshua if we are to overcome. If we wrestle and lose, we win. Isn't that good? If we wrestle and lose, we win. It is the belief of the Messianic rabbis that this wasn't the wrestling match that we would perceive it to be. Violent in nature. It was something very familiar to them, but really it was more of a challenge, more of a test than it was a wrestling match. It was a struggle, certainly between Jacob and God. There is no question about it. But in my mind, I have always pictured the rending of his hip as coming from an embrace where Jacob would grab the Lord from behind as he was trying to walk away and he was squeezing him for all he was worth. And the Lord reached down and touched his hip and that was the end of it and he got out of his grasp. But the Messianic Jewish rabbis would tell you that they were reversed. Jacob was facing him looking into his eyes when he touched his hip. And they believe that based on passages like this. This is Genesis 32 again, picking up in verse 25. Listen closely. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Now listen, verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He saw him face to face. The rabbis coupled that with this teaching from Hosea chapter 12. If you're a note taker in your Bible, you might want to write Hosea chapter 12 right next to the margin um, near Genesis 32 so that you can link these two passages. Listen to what the old prophet Hosea says, starting in verse 2 of chapter 12. The Lord has an, an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. 
In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. Verse 4. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. So they take Hosea chapter 12. They put it together with Genesis chapter 32. And these Messianic Jewish rabbis say that this wrestling match ended with them face to face and the Lord just reaching down and touching his hip. It wasn't a violent act. It came from an embrace. It came out of love. And therefore the limp was a sign of that. From that point forward, every step he took was a reminder of that moment, what God had done in his life, the changes that came as a result. If it is true that after we have been in God's camp, many of us will walk with a limp, then the choice is ours, whether we will love it or hate it. If it is God-given, it is still your choice. Will I love it or will I hate it? If we love it, it's a sign of the relationship we have with God. If we hate it, it's a sign of the relationship that we have with God. If we continue to hate it, it's a sign that we are still holding on to too much control. And that needs to be surrendered. Then the Lord will give us a new present and a new future as He redeems our past through His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Just stand and pray with me. Father in heaven, there's a lot in this passage. You continue to reveal more and more. And I am grateful for that. We started out by saying that there was a lot that we need to apply and there's a lot of that application that is hard for us. I pray, Lord, that you won't make it easier, but you'll make it possible for us to surrender those things to you. And I pray, Lord, that as we do, we'll see what lies ahead and we'll move into those promises, into that goodness. And I pray, Father, that it'll stay with us forever. Thank you for the lessons of Jacob's life. We can all find ourselves somewhere in his story. Even in this wrestling match, we find ourselves somewhere in the midst of it. Whether it is in our initial belief or whether it is in the point of surrender, we're in there somewhere. Help us see it, Lord. And help us surrender to your love, your embrace. In Jesus' name. Amen.